by uh, popular request, I'm going to do David and Bathsheba. <laughs> That's the popular request over there. So the, the story is, starts in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, so the first thing that you know from this is David's out of position. Okay? It's, uh, it leads off with this is the time when kings go out to battle. David's the king. So David should be out to battle instead of hanging around Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is, this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant, which is, of course, the last thing he wanted to hear. Again, some new folks here. Um, it is the custom in Israel that uh, a woman, after her normal monthly cycle, she typically lasts a week, and then you have a week clear. And at the end of that week, the woman takes a mikvah, and at that point, she and her husband can come back together. So what was going on here is Bathsheba was in the process of taking her mikvah at the end of the second week. And that's when David saw her. So let's go on and tell the story, and then we'll come back and pick it apart and talk about the characters. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So, okay, we've got this problem. This gal is pregnant. However, she does have a husband. And the husband works for David. So David sends off to Joab, who's off slaying Ammonites and so forth, and says, I want Uriah back here, figuring that Uriah will take the opportunity, since he's back there, to uh, renew, acquaintances with ship, renew acquaintanceships with his wife, and in that process, then, it will not be able to be proven whose the child is. Okay? Unfortunately, but Uriah slept with the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah is being a Boy Scout and saying, you know, you've, you've brought me back here on this mission, what, and I'm assuming that you brought me back here to tell you what's going on at the front. Got a 
thing to do. I came back, I did the thing, and I'm going back, and it wouldn't be seemly for me to spend a whole lot of time in Jerusalem when nobody else in the army is doing the same thing. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David had invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went down to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. So again, David says, all right, well, let's just hang out here a little while. And and David gets him liquored up in the hopes that uh, Uriah will forget his steadfastness and uh, go see his wife. And of course, that doesn't work. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, there is no ambiguity in this. One of the things that happens in, in political discourse, you've all heard the story of, which was the one with Henry and Beckett? Which Henry was it? Second. Okay. Uh, Henry II uh, in, in England was being harassed by Beckett. And he, in frustration, says, well, nobody rid me of this priest. And somebody said, aha, and went and killed him. So what happens in that case is the king has plausible deniability. In other words, the king didn't say, somebody go kill that guy. It was sort of an offhand, or it's recorded in history anyway, as sort of an offhand, frustrated remark with this guy that some overzealous subordinate took too far. There's no possibility of that with David here. Okay? David is giving explicit instructions of what he wants to have happen. And some of the fallout of that is Joab is going to hang on to that note forever. So what's going to happen later is Joab is going to do some pretty scummy things. And David would really like to get rid of Joab because Joab is quite frankly a thug. Okay, So David would love to get rid of Joab, but he can't because Joab has got this note. And you remember, oh, a couple weeks ago on Shabbat, we were reading the beginning of 1 Kings where David was giving instructions to Solomon on his deathbed. Remember that? And what were David's instructions to Solomon concerning Joab? Kill him. You need to kill this guy. You could look at that as being David taking vengeance, or you could look at that as David knows Joab and wants to make sure that Joab doesn't get up to his old tricks in the new kingdom. Okay, But David is unable to take care of that little detail himself because of what he's done here. So anyway, you all know the story, and, and, and Uriah does in fact get killed, and I'm going to skip forward uh, to chapter 12. And actually, let's, let's pick it up at, uh, at 11.26. Uh, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, I guess so. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest who had come to him. So the, the story here is he's setting up this little parable and saying you have a poor man who has one lamb. And this one lamb is the light of his life. He just really likes this lamb. And a traveler comes to visit the rich man. And the deal is when a traveler comes and visits, you set out proper hospitality. Remember Abraham did that when the three angels showed up to him? And the parable of the friend at midnight in, in the uh, Gospels, when Yeshua is talking about a parable where some guy has an unexpected visitor show up late at night, and this guy feels perfectly free to go around the village banging on doors saying, I need bread, I need this, I need that, because I have to entertain this guest. So entertaining the guest is essentially the responsibility of the community. I mean, it, he's, the guest is in one house, but the honor of the community is at stake. So preparing something for a guest is a big deal. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor to lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Okay? And again, I'm sure all of you know this. This incident is the genesis for the writing of Psalm 51. So if you read Psalm 51, what Psalm 51 is David's confession, lamentation, repentance before the Lord for this incident. So there's the story. So in order to unpack things, we need to figure out who the players are. So the first one then is Uriah. And if you go to First um, Chronicles 11.26, all right, First Chronicles 11 is the account of David being anointed king 
over Israel. Okay? Now, again, for those of you who remember your history, David reigned for a number of years as the king of Judah in Hebron. Okay? Again, remember when uh, he died in 1 Kings, it says that he died and he reigned, and I forgot, I think seven years in Hebron, and then uh, 33 years in Jerusalem. I, those numbers may not be precisely correct, but the magnitude is right. Less than a decade in Hebron, and he reigned 40 years total. And the reason he did that is because he's, he is from Judah. He is not, uh, not king over the whole nation. So after this period where he's reigning in Judah, the rest of Israel comes down to Hebron and says, we want you to be king over all of us. And at that point, David moves up to Jerusalem and, and he, he wants to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And the ones who go before him to take Jerusalem are his mighty men. Okay? And in fact, that's how Joab becomes commander of the army. Because they're they're attacking the city of the Jebusites. And David says to his mighty men, the guy that gets in there first is going to be commander of the army. And that's Joab. Okay, so that's how he he rises to the level of commander of the army. So anyway, chapter 11 is his investiture as king. And in that process, it gives lists of stuff. And if you go down to... uh, verse 26, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all this, you have the mighty men. Now, now there's several groups. He's got three guys who are his, his chief champions, would be called in, in uh, you know, Middle Europe. He would, they would be champions. And so you've got three guys that are just really uh, his, his best guys. And then under them, you've got some others, and you've got the 30 and so forth. So if you read the list of starting in, in 26, and I'm not going to read it, but you get down to verse 41, you come up with Uriah the Hittite. Okay? And if you go down to verse 12, or chapter 12, I'm sorry, and you say, now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag. And, what it, and, and again, Ziklag is a place in uh, the southwestern part of Israel, south and west of Jerusalem. And it's where David was hanging out when he was hanging around with the Philistines, when Saul was chasing him. Okay, before he became king. And Ziklag was one of his hiding places, if you will. This group of mighty men that was with David, he started to acquire clear back then when he was running from Saul in the wilderness. Okay, so these guys have been with him during the entire time he was in the wilderness, during the time that he was king in Hebron, and they're fixing to go up with him to Jerusalem. So these are folks you know. Now, we don't know from Scripture precisely when Uriah joined the group. You know, I, I just can't tell you how long Uriah has been with David. But the point is, up until this unfortunate incident with Bathsheba, David was a field commander. So when his army went into the field, he was with them. He ate with them, he slept with them, he fought with them, he, you know, all that kind of stuff. So these people have a history together. And I would imagine it is a decade or more that they've been together. And these men are personally loyal to David. They are not loyal to Israel. So one of the things that you'll notice is Jerusalem is called the city of David. 
The reason it's called the city of David is because David took it with his mighty men. Okay, David took it. The nation Israel didn't take it. Okay, so it is the city of David. So these guys are, are his hand-picked troops that he has known for a long time. They've, they've lived together, they've shared hardships together, and, oh, by the way, I'm going to take one of your wives. So what I'm saying to you is, this is not, Bathsheba is just not some random babe on top of a, of a house out there that he just happens to catch his eye. This is the wife of somebody that he knows intimately and he has known for a long time and who trusts him implicitly. In other words, this is really far scummier than most people realize. So that's Uriah. So now we need to go to Bathsheba. And this is an interesting lady. It says that she is the daughter of Eliam. And Eliam has two mentions in Scripture. One, where he's mentioned as the father of Bathsheba. And two, where he is mentioned as one of David's mighty men. Those are his own two, only two descriptions. So if you, if you get the story then, you've got the mighty men who are a, a, cl- a tight, close-knit group. Uriah is one. Eliam is one. So Uriah marries the daughter of one of his companions. Okay? So this is all very close and very tight-knit. And you can infer that Bathsheba has, this is inference now, it's not in Scripture, that probably uh, Bathsheba was with them in places like Ziklag and so forth. So she, I mean, she's been with the been with David and so forth for a while. She is not a stranger. He knows her well. Okay? You know, I'm sure they, you know, gone to dinner parties together, uh, you know, all those kinds of things that military organizations do when they, you know, have meals and stuff like that. I'm sure she was in all of them. She grew up in, ah, wait a minute. I just went ahead of myself, didn't I? Who's her grandfather? Who's her grandfather? Ahithophel. Okay, Ahithophel. Okay, now who's Ahithophel, you ask? The father of Eliam. No, the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ahithophel is one of David's primary court counselors. He is one of David's wise men. And he is regarded, and if you read in the Talmud, he is regarded in wisdom as being on the par with Balaam. Remember Balaam and the talking donkey? That guy. He is regarded as knowing secrets. He is regarded as someone who gives very wise counsel. And he is also regarded as someone like Balaam who received a great gift of wisdom from God and misused it. So, if you look at her pedigree, Bathsheba is the granddaughter of one of David's chief advisors. She is the daughter of one of his mighty men. So what I'm suggesting to you is this gal knows her way around the court. Because that's where she grew up. Again, this is not some innocent little waif who has no idea. The big, strong, handsome king just batted his eyes at me and I didn't know what to do. No. This gal has been in 
the courts all of her life. That's where she grew up. She's used to the power of politics. She's used to the way things happen. And as we'll see in a few minutes, she's a player. So what I'm suggesting to you at this point is although the scripture lays the blame for all of this on David, and properly so, David had help. Okay? I think Bathsheba knew exactly what she was doing. And I think she, you know, sort, of, sort of like with Bill Clinton, where Monica you know, flashed a little underwear and because she knew what his reputation was. The same kind of thing. And we'll see that she's a player as we, as we go forward because there's a couple of other instances in her life that, that prove it. Okay, so that's Uriah, that's Bathsheba. Now let's take a look at the fallout. If you go to 2 Samuel 15, this is Absalom's rebellion. Okay, Now Absalom is one of David's sons. Absalom is kind of a thug also. And I won't go back to it, but if you remember the story about Tamar, David's daughter, David's eldest son fell in love with her. And the eldest son raped her. Then once that had happened, decided, eh, I can't stand her anymore. So he's basically raped his half-sister and then is, is lost interest in the whole thing. The problem is this half-sister Tamar is the full sister of Absalom. So what happens is Absalom plots and he kills his half-brother, for which David exiles him to the northern kingdom and, and so forth. But after a while he brings him back and, and they patch things up. And Absalom then starts to acquire for himself a following. And he gets men to run before him, and he gives gifts, and he starts you know, passing out a little walking around money uh, in, in modern parlance, okay? And starts to acquire for himself a following. Then he decides David shouldn't be king anymore. And he leads a rebellion, and he comes after his father, and he comes into Jerusalem. And, of course, you all know the story. David and his most trusted advisors flee, and they head off to Mahanaim, which is on the other side of the Jordan. So Absalom comes into the city, having run his father out. And I think I want to pick it up at, uh, let's pick it up at the beginning. So 2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when, when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came, to hear, came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. 
Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what he's doing is he's standing outside the gates and he's basically promising everybody that if you elect me, I'll give you whatever you want. Uh, moving along, and I'm, I'm not going to read all of this. I want to get to Second uh, Samuel 15:13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and quickly and bring him down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to David, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the, my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. All right, so what's going on here is David hears that Absalom's coming. What David doesn't want is a siege in Jerusalem. Okay? In other words, to have himself and Absalom duking it out over Jerusalem is going to cause a tremendous amount of bloodshed and damage, and he doesn't want to do that. Okay? So what he's going to do is he's going to take off and, and, and he's going to leave. And he leaves behind him to watch over his house, ten of his concubines. Ding, 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 ding. Remember what the prophet Nathan said? Second Samuel 16, 15. One chapter forward. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. So look who is now become the chief advisor to Absalom, having been a chief advisor to David. 16. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now, again, I skipped over all this, but Hushai is David's plant. David has left, has told Hushai, I want you to go back and I want you to be my eyes and ears in the capital. And I want you to get into Absalom's good graces because Absalom has got Ahithophel with him. And what I want you to do is when Ahithophel gives Absalom advice, I want you to give him conflicting advice. Okay, so that's Hushai's mission. But again, remember that Absalom hasn't got anything to work with except Israelites, right? So everybody that Absalom is working with has at some point been on David's side. Okay, so the fact that Hushai changes sides is not anything unusual because everybody that Absalom has is somebody who's changed sides. Okay, does that so make sense? But Absalom's suspicious. So I'm in uh, 17. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? So Absalom ain't completely just didn't fall off a truck of truckload of terms yesterday. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, this I will be. In other words, whoever the Lord and the people of Israel choose for king, that's my king. This I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. 
Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, who he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Verse 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So in the political consultant realm, Ahithophel is right up there on top. So what Ahithophel says to Absalom, well, all right, the way to burn your bridges behind you, if you will, is go take your father's concubines, and then everybody will know that it's on. Because at that point, there's no turning back. Now, one of the things to understand is Ahithophel secretly despises David because of the incident with Bathsheba. So what Ahithophel is doing is giving his son some really rotten advice. Yes, it will accomplish what Ahithophel says it will accomplish, but it also goes against the Torah. It goes against the Word of God. And it also is not going to sit well with all of the Israelites who are still Torah observant. So yes, it's going to accomplish the political purpose that he's trying to accomplish, but in that process, it is going to sow the seeds of the destruction of Absalom, which is, I think, what Ahithophel wants. He wants to destroy David and his house. Precisely. And, and the comment was that it fulfills the prophecy that was given by Nathan to David. Precisely fulfills it. And, and you're correct. Um, so everything that God says in response to the incident with Bathsheba is, in fact, coming to pass. Because he said several things, right? He says, your concubines are going to be taken, right? Ding, ding. He says, one in your own house will rise up against you. Absalom, right? He says that the son that comes from the first union between David and Bathsheba is going to die. That child dies. So everything that God has prophesied about this comes to pass. As I say, the Talmud, or at least the little snippets that I read of the Talmud, says that Ahithophel, and it says says here, uh, back down in verse 23, Ahithophel has a tremendous gift. He's got a gift of wisdom. Um, They also say he's got a gift of spiritual discernment and a bunch of other things. And they say that he misused that gift. And yes, he did. But what I'm suggesting to you, they're saying that it's a it's a, a, a character flaw, and that may be true. What I'm saying is, this is revenge. This isn't something that he would have done absent the incident with Bathsheba. Okay? Um, so then... Uh, wind forward in the story, Ahithophel recommends that Absalom mount up some men right now and go after David. Chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. 
And I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So again, Ahithophel is putting his wisdom to work and he's reasoning, all right, you got David off balance. He's out in the open. He's running. He's discouraged. Let's get him now because, parenthesis, not stated, if he ever settles down and gets his feet under him, you got trouble, boy. So Ahithophel gives him good advice. And this is, of course, where Hushai comes in. And Hushai says, oh, well, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just came into Jerusalem. You haven't got this place stabilized yet. You need to take a few minutes here and get Jerusalem under control, get this stuff stabilized, get, get everything under you, and then take off and, and go do what you need to do. Absalom takes Hushai's advice. And at that point, Ahithophel packs up his magic wand, gets on his donkey, goes home, and hangs himself. Down in 1723, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So, again, remember, Ahithophel is no dummy. And what he did is he told Absalom the only thing that Absalom could do that would give him any probability of success against David. Because remember, David has spent his entire life commanding armies in the field. He's old, but he ain't dumb. Absalom has never swung a sword, as far as I know. So you've got this young guy, full of pea and vinegar, gets a retinue around him by smoozing and stuff, and he goes up against the old lion, and David pulls out of Jerusalem to avoid a bloodbath, goes to Mahanaim, which again is where it's it just nasty country. It's up on the other side of the Jordan. It's where um, Jacob wrestled with the angel. So he goes up there and gathers his people around him. And at that point, Absalom's got a real problem. And Ahithophel knows that. So what Ahithophel says, oh, okay, I took a swing at it. It isn't going to work. So I might just as well die on my own terms. Basically what he's saying. So he goes home and puts everything, everything to rights. Everything's in. Kill himself. Because he knows that at this point Absalom's not going to win. And, and oh, by the way, who is the one who kills Absalom? Joab. Joab kills Absalom. And you remember, I'm not going to read this, but David sends his army out and he says to Joab, I want that kid alive. I don't want him killed. And of course, Absalom, being the vain young cock that he is, has got this mane of hair. He used to cut his hair once a year. And he used to weigh the hair. And, it, and it, he had like five or six pounds of hair when he cut it every, every year. Very, very much a, a peacock of a man. So he's realizing that the battle ain't going well. And he's beating feet out of there with his mule and his hair gets caught in, the, in a tree. 
And so he's hanging there, the mule having gone on before him. And somebody comes and says to Joab, we found Absalom. So Absalom beats feet over there and just spears him on the spot. Runs two spears through him. And David is just heartbroken. Moping and moaning and all that kind of stuff. And so finally Joab comes up to him and says, all right, man up. All these guys have fought for you. You're sitting around like a spoiled child moping. Get up and act like a king. And so he does, and off he goes. But he never forgets Joab. Joab has killed two other people. He killed Abner, and he killed Ashael. Abner for sure. I think Ashael was the other one. Uh, And he did it under less than kosher circumstances. So Joab's a thug. There's no question about it. And David makes sure that his son takes care of the problem as one of the first things that happens upon taking uh, kingship. All right. So now let's finish up with Bathsheba. We've got a few minutes and we'll, we'll get there. So now let's go to First Kings. First Kings 1. So now David is old and getting ready to check out. And he's got another son, Adonijah. And Adonijah has, is showing uh, Absalom tendencies here. Now, he isn't going to rise up in rebellion, but what he does is he starts gathering people around him. And he starts gathering factions, and he starts arranging things so that as David dies, he is going to be, have himself declared king by popular acclamation. Okay? And so I'm down in verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of... Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Sound familiar? Okay. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this, thus and so? So his dad was not reining him in. So he just continues to run. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zariah, and Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Samuel, and and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. All right, Benaniah is the head of the mighty men at this point. So you got Joab, who's the commander of the army, and you got Benaniah, who's the commander of the mighty men. Joab's going with Adonijah. Benaniah is staying with David. Okay? And you've got Zadok the priest is staying with David, but Abiathar the priest is going with Adonijah. So what, what's happening is they're divvying up. Verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is at, beside Enrogel, and that's down at the bottom point of Jerusalem. He invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. And you all remember who Nathan is, right? Nathan's a prophet that blew the whistle on the Bathsheba incident. So here's where it starts to get thick. Verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggath has come become king, and David the Lord, our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? 
then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Okay? Now, I am not doubting Scripture. However, Scripture is terse. Okay? Scripture doesn't flesh things out a lot. My belief and suspicion is that Bathsheba is not this innocent little thing who the prophet comes to and says, do you know what's going on? I think Bathsheba and Nathan know all about this and are setting this up. And what's recorded here is Nathan's side of the conversation. That's not biblical. And if you don't like that, you don't have to buy it. It's not in the Bible. I'm just saying I've been watching this gal for a while, and it's very much in her character, and we'll see the next incident that she confirms it. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, keep track of her, she'll be back. Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit in my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. There's nowhere in scripture that it's recorded that David promised that he would be succeeded by Solomon. Okay, that is not in scripture. And again, my suspicion here is there's some suggestive wording going on as she makes her request. And she's sort of putting him in a, in a box where he's only really got one answer that he can give. And I, I think that's what she's doing by the way she's phrasing her, her comments. So David agrees. Verse 22, go down, skip down to 22. While Nathan was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and said, there's Nathan the prophet. And of course, Nathan confirms everything. So the two of them are opposite sides or on the same side of a political faction at this point. Verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king's presence, stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, smiling sweetly, and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. So then David called Zadok the priest, and as soon as the word gets out that David has anointed Solomon, you know, Jerusalem comes to a point, okay, and down at the bottom is in Rogel. And they got a barbecue going there where Adonijah, Adonijah, Adonijah is putting on a barbecue for all the people who are supporting him and their king. The word comes down that David has chosen Solomon, and boy, you can hear the lamb bones hit the ground, and everybody scatters. Nobody, all of a sudden, wants to be at that barbecue anymore. And again, I won't read all that, but that's what happens. So then we have the the crowning of uh, Solomon, And chapter 2 is David's instruction to Solomon. I've told you about that. All right, so now let's go down to 1 Kings 2.13. So this is after the coronation of of, uh, Solomon. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggath, came to Bathsheba. 
the mother of Solomon and said, and she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. In other words, why are you here? And he says, cool, it's cool. Now, remember, Adonijah is, just, is the guy that just got slicked out of being king. And he's coming to the king's mother. Verse 14. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers. For it is from the Lord. Okay, so he's saying, you know, I thought I was going to be king, but God's thought otherwise. Okay, in other words, he's acknowledging that God has a hand in this and, and it's just the way it is. I understand. Verse 16. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well. I will speak for you to the king. I have to go back to the beginning of 1 Kings to find out who Abishag is. Abishag is a sweet young cupcake that is brought in from somewhere in Israel at the king's dying days to attend to the king and keep him warm. Okay? That, that literally what it says her job is. She is to lie with the king and keep him warm. And he never had relations with, him, with her. That's also in scripture. She, he, never, he was never able to do anything with her. But at this point, when she's been with the king, she is a concubine. She's also a real looker. Okay? That was one of the criteria for recruiting this girl is she is a very good-looking young lady. Okay? That, again, the idea was that they were hoping that they could get David interested, I think. Uh, but he was just too old. So for whatever reason, terminal stupidity, whatever, Adonijah has got a hankering for this girl. And so he goes and asks Bathsheba to ask Solomon. Big mistake. He should have asked Solomon directly if he wanted to play that game because with mom in the middle, oh, lights are starting to come on. Yes. Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak on his, to him on behalf of Adonijah. In other words, I am just the messenger here, dear. Right? So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you, do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask? Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah. Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side there are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. So he then has Adonijah killed. Now, again, Understand, Solomon is no dummy. He is the wisest man that ever lived. And I'm sure the lights just went off on him like a pinball. But I'm also sure 
that mom was involved in this process. Because you've got now three incidents where Bathsheba shows up. And every time Bathsheba shows up, there is a transfer of power for somebody else to her or to her family. You had the incident with David. And lo and behold, she winds up his wife. Not his concubine, his wife. Okay? You had the incident with Adonijah. And lo and behold, her son shows up as king. Second incident with Adonijah. And lo and behold, his chief rival suddenly assumes room temperature and disappears. So what I'm suggesting to you is, first off, Scripture is terse. I mean, there, you know, if you, you were writing a novel about this, you could put a lot of dialogue in there. But I'm suggesting to you that Bathsheba is a player. She is a power player in the court of David, and she has been from when she was a young woman, and she's used her wiles, her knowledge of the system, and all of that kind of stuff to advance herself and her son. Now, again, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Scripture is wrong, and Scripture records the conversation as it records them. Okay, and so I'm not arguing with that. But I'm simply saying, every time there's a transfer of power, she's right in the middle of it. So I don't think that this is an accident. Right. Comment was that as sordid as all this is, and it is pretty sordid, that at the end of the day, in all circumstances, David returns to God. And David accepts responsibility. And David humbles himself before God. And so, as I say, as, as, as ugly as all this is, and it is very ugly, David is able to maintain his standing with God through the whole thing. Okay? Or a better way to say that is when David gets out of fellowship with God, he immediately turns back and, and gets back into fellowship. And that's the difference between David and your average tin pot dictator. <laughs>